Well, good morning. The last time I stood before you in the, in the pulpit uh, was just three and a half weeks ago on Ash Wednesday. And that was less than a month ago, but it seems like a different lifetime in some ways, doesn't it? Truly, this has been a Lent like no other that we've experienced. A few days ago, author Andy Crouch tweeted, honestly hadn't planned on giving up quite this much for Lent. That quip makes me laugh every time I see it. Um, but it's referencing the sober reality that the whole world has now been plunged into a Lenten season of unprecedented deprivation. As of just yesterday, we're now being asked to sacrifice human closeness and freedom of movement. And that's on top of having to grapple with a new awareness of our fragility and our mortality. You might be surprised then to learn that today is a day that the church has set aside as a special day for rejoicing. Today is the middle Sunday of Lent, and the middle Sunday of Lent is called Letere Sunday, or Rejoice Sunday. As a matter of fact, if Emmanuel had a more extensive liturgical wardrobe, Aaron and I would be wearing pink stoles, and the frontal would be pink, um, in honor of the, the lightened atmosphere of Rejoice Sunday. The word literary means rejoice, and it comes from a little snippet from the prophet Isaiah. Rejoice with joy, you that have been in sorrow. Literary Sunday is a day to rejoice, even as we make our Lenten sacrifices. And I believe with all my heart that this is the, words, the Lord's word for us today. Rejoice with joy, you that have been in sorrow. Rejoice now in your sorrow, even as you make sacrifices. That's quite a paradox. And so it is fitting that today's gospel passage draws us into a paradox as well. We're looking at the terrible thirst of Jesus as he hangs on the cross and finding there an opening into a deep, wide, life-altering stream of joy. As we contemplate the connection between suffering and joy for Jesus, he will enable us to see how our own suffering and sacrifice might lead to joy. I thirst. This is the shortest of all of Jesus' sayings from the cross. What does Jesus mean by it, and why does John include such a little word from the cross? The most straightforward reading of John 19 verses 28 through 30, tell the basics. Jesus was a human being just like each of us. He suffered the same thirst that you or I would have suffered if our body had been treated like his body had been. When Jesus was beaten and put to death, his body responded to pain and to suffering just like our bodies do. This is a man who has lost his reputation and his friends. The tears that accompany these losses dehydrated him. He's been spit upon, struck, mocked. The sweat of undergoing the pain and pressure of this abuse has depleted him further. His skin has been flayed from his back. He's probably fevered with infection by this point. Almost half of his blood has now drained out, and he suffers from shortness of breath as he nears suffocation. His cry of distress, I thirst, is real. It's a reference to Psalm 90, 69, which
which begins with the play, plea, save me, O Lord, and includes the lament, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus' declaration of thirst points to how his death fulfills scripture, and his declaration of thirst leads to the fulfillment of scripture as well, because a soldier hearing this cry gives him pasca, which is a drink of cheap sour wine that the soldiers mixed with water and kept on hand while they were on duty to hydrate themselves on the job. In response to Jesus's cry, which fulfilled scripture, they fulfilled scripture also, giving him sour wine to moisten his swollen tongue, and this enabled him to make his final pronouncement on the cross in a loud voice, it is finished. At first glance, this straightforward reading of the text may seem completely unconnected with joy. But of course, it means something very joyful indeed. It means that there is no sacrifice and no suffering that you and I will face in this season that Jesus cannot identify with. He knows weakness and dread and anguish and is therefore fit to accompany, accompany us through any trial that we're going to face. If I were to come down with a raging fever and shortness of breath tomorrow, and if I were diagnosed with COVID-19 and nobody I love is allowed in a room with me, Jesus himself will be with me and stay with me and bear my pain and my loneliness with me, even if no one else is near. I know this in part because I had a similar experience during my first experience of childbirth when I entered a period of pain that I couldn't understand and I tried to communicate with my husband and with my mother-in-law and with, with the midwives and they tried to explain things to me and I couldn't process what they were saying and I had to let go of that and acknowledge it was just going to be me and Jesus. Jesus has forged the path that leads all the way through suffering and through death. And because he is with me, I have nothing to fear. This is true for all those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is another level of meaning here that goes even deeper than the physical sufferings of Jesus. Specifically, his thirst. Of all the terrible suffering and losses that Jesus has experienced, thirst is the only one that Jesus names. Why? The author of this narrative, the Apostle John, gives us not one but two reasons why Jesus announced that he was thirsty. In verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. So these are two significant reasons John gives, knowing all, that was now, knowing all that was now finished and to fulfill the scripture. We've already noted how even the specific detail of his thirstiness matches details in the scriptures written hundreds of years prior, but there's more to this business of completion and thirsting even than that that is a fulfillment of scripture. We must start by asking, what was it that Jesus has now finished? What has Jesus completed, and what does it have to do with thirst? You may remember the heartfelt prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, Father, remove this cup from me, and my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The metaphor of a cup is not very familiar to us, but it was a well-known metaphor for the contemporaries of Jesus. One scholar describes it like this. Throughout scripture, as in the near, ancient Near East, the cup functions as a metaphor for an individual's fate. You might say that the idea of drinking your cup is something similar to playing the cards you've been dealt. It has fewer connotations of chance and luck, but your cup is something like your assignment in life, what you have been given to face, what you've been given to work with or an assignment to do. The contents of your cup may be sweet or distasteful or a combination of both, but the idea is one of destiny. This cup has been made for you specifically to drink. Now, we Americans like to imagine ourselves as masters of our own destinies. We don't like the idea of having our fate, our life script handed to us. We have big dreams, we have big plans, the concept of personal choice runs deep in our psyche. We like life best when we feel large and in charge. I get to choose my own work. I choose the people I hang out with. I expect to run my relationships the way I want to or need to and plan on whether or not to have children. I'll pick the city I want to live in and I'll pick the lifestyle that I'll lead there. I believe I have the right to define my very identity down to the ground and the only destiny that I will bow to is the one I choose for myself. That is the American manifesto. And if you're rich enough and lucky enough, you can pull it off until you can't. I probably don't need to point out that the illusion of choosing one's destiny is coming apart at the seams right now. No one has chosen the circumstances we're living in right now. The idea that I get to choose my fate or write out my own assignment is being threatened daily and even hourly right now. I say with Frodo Baggins, the hobbit, I wish this had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And I hear Gandalf responding, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. It's not that we have no choices in life. It's that all our choices are limited to how to receive the cup that we've been offered. Our assignment has been chosen for us. I don't know for sure the contents of the cup that has been prepared for me in this season, but I confess I'm usually more anxious than joyful in this season. Jesus dreaded the drinking of his cup, his assignment also. In fact, as we've just noted, Jesus prayed earnestly that the cup prepared for him might somehow pass him by, which seems odd. If anyone is the master of his own fate, wouldn't it be God, God the Son? What would he have to fear from the cup assigned to him by his beloved and loving Father? But the assignment given to Jesus was to drink a cup more bitter and vile than any cup before or any cup after. He was asked by the Father to drink the cup of judgment for all the sin and pain and suffering and evil that's ever been executed or endured by the human race. 
The cup includes the acts of injustice that you and I have committed and all the evil that's been done against us. If you have ever been righteously inflamed with anger, when you've witnessed oppression or corruption or cruelty, you know the whole earth cries out for justice. And as we prayed just this morning in confession, we have provoked most justly the righteous anger and the indignation against us. The title of Psalm 75 is God Will Judge with Equity. And that psalm includes these verses. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It's an intolerable situation. The justice of God determines that unjust people must drink a bitter cup. But the mercy of God means that he will not abandon us even to the justice we deserve. It's an intolerable dilemma for a God both merciful and just. So, in the fullness of time, God's elegant, breathtaking solution emerges. This solution, on the cross, God himself will drink the bitter cup of God's judgment, and he will drain it to the last. This is a cause for great rejoicing. (laughs) Jesus dreaded his cup, but strengthened by his Father's love, he chose to drink it anyway. He drank up the cup of all our sins, and he drank up all of our suffering that trails behind sin. He took everything, and he drank it. He took everything that could harm us and drank it. He took our infirmities, our fears, our mental illness, our wickedness, our helplessness, our weakness, and he drank it all up down to the dregs. He drained the cup. He emptied it completely so that there is nothing left to fear. In draining that foaming cup of sin and judgment, in draining it to the dregs, Jesus changed our destinies forever. Our cups will still hold suffering, that acidic kind of sour taste of suffering, but there is no judgment, no bitter poison anymore. Nothing can separate us again from the love of the Father. But there is more here even than freedom from fear. Having completed his assignment, having drunk the cup, Jesus could have moved directly to the words, also in today's text, it is finished. But instead, with his next to last breath, he draws attention to his thirst. The cup of wrath is empty, but Jesus' thirst is not slaked. He is not yet satisfied. He is not full. He speaks of his longing, his thirsting for us. It is the central mystery of the cross. As Jesus drained the cup of suffering, he poured himself out for us. And when he had poured himself out, nothing remained but love. This is the thirst of which Jesus speaks. He drained the cup to the bottom, and nothing is left but the thirst of the lover for the beloved. Jesus thirsts with love for you and for me. A priest named Thomas Rusica wrote the following account of a visit he made to Mother Teresa 
and the Sisters of Charity in Calcutta. He writes, I asked Mother Teresa why the words, I thirst, were on the wall of the chapel. I thought that they had been placed there for the season of Lent. Mother Teresa took my hand and told me quite firmly that those words are found in every convent chapel of her order, taken from Jesus' words from the cross in John's Gospel. I remember her distinctly saying to me, they remind us of what the missionaries of charity are here for, to quench the thirst of Jesus for souls, for love, for kindness, for compassion, for delicate love. He was told by the missionaries of charity that they were founded explicitly, this is their mission statement, to satiate the thirst of Jesus Christ on the cross for love and souls. He goes on to say, when suffering persons in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Gaza, Ethiopia, India, or Sudan experience torturing thirst, Mother Teresa and her sisters would quickly bring water to satiate the thirst of the people they served. Mother Teresa and her sisters desired to satiate Jesus' thirst by promptly responding to his will, by making sacrifices for him, by loving him in the people they serve, and by entrusting their entire life into the hands of God. They are committed to drinking their cup, which is to satiate the thirst of Jesus for his beloved people. The Sisters of Charity find in this very personal word of grief, I thirst, a love poem. And out of that love poem, they find their assignment, their cup. Paradoxically, the empty cup fills us with courage to face our destiny, and the fullness of the love of Jesus now defines our cup. He drank our cup of death so that we may drink the cup of life. We can, in fact, face the suffering and sacrifices assigned to us with good cheer. The flavor in our cup that we naturally are pulling back from is no longer the bitterness of death. It is merely that sour, acidic taste of the trials that refine us. Even now, the sufferings in our cup are mingling with the sweetness of the cup of salvation. This is the great exchange. The cup of wrath and judgment is become for us through Christ the cup of eternal life, the cup full of the medicine of immortality, the cup of unending spring, the cup of Easter, when this winter is past and the time of the singing of the birds is come. That cup is now ours in Christ Jesus. It is the certain hope and coming joy of this eternal cup that enables us to grieve well this present moment. Jesus shows us how to grieve our losses well by accepting our assignment to suffer and to sacrifice for the sake of love. I don't think it's an accident that Emmanuel has felt more and more strongly recently the call to share the joy of Christ with unbelievers. Over the past year or so, this call has been intensifying in Emmanuel. And I don't think that it's an accident that at the clergy retreat for our whole diocese just a few weeks ago, there was there an unexpected swelling of spiritual energy and enthusiasm for that same thing, 
evangelism, sharing the gospel, bringing hope to our neighbors who are so weighed down with anxiety. More than 3,000 years ago in the Exodus, God used plagues to liberate millions of Hebrew men, women, and children from oppression and slavery and to drive them into the promised land. There are millions of men, women, and children surrounding us in Chicago today who are currently terrified about the plague of COVID-19. God loves them. What can stop God from using this plague to liberate millions of our neighbors from the oppression of fear and slavery to sin? He thirsts with love for them. And I've been so encouraged, Emmanuel, by how ready you are to take up the cup that you've been assigned in these difficult days. I'm assuming that you, like me, sometimes feel overwhelmed and anxious about this unprecedented crisis. I'm still catching my breath. You probably are too. But what I've heard from many of you already is that you are eager to take up your assignment to suffer and to sacrifice for love of church and love of neighbor. There's a young family who is today collecting money for an Aldi gift card to give to a friend of theirs who is impoverished and lost his uh, low-paying job. Um, an energetic 20-something told me he is eager to jump on his bicycle and deliver supplies to anybody who might need something. An elegant professional woman has asked for a list of isolated individuals whom she can call and encourage over the phone. The Holy Spirit is stirring us up with love to fulfill the destiny of this day. As you are being inspired by the Holy Spirit, he will be giving you ideas about how to love people inside the church and outside the church. I want you to please share those ideas with us. You can email me at susan at emmanuelanglican.org. Um, anything that's on your mind, any ways that you've already been reaching out, any ideas you have, the staff would love to hear from you. We are here to help equip and mobilize and pastor you as you lean into the assignment our ever-loving God has passed on to you. The thirst of the Lord Jesus on the cross is breaking open streams of life for us. Rejoice, latare, rejoice with joy, you that have been in sorrow. Rejoice now in your sorrow. The Lord is with you. In the name of the Father, in the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.